on today's episode of the Real Foodology Podcast. Nature is welcoming us back into our our future health and uh, her arms are wide open waiting for us to realign ourselves with natural systems and we will realize a new humanity almost instantly. And we see that in regenerative agriculture. Hi, welcome back to another episode of the Real Foodology Podcast. I am Courtney Swan, your host and the creator and founder of Real Foodology. Today and this episode is a really profound moment for me. I started Real Foodology in 2011. So 11 years ago in my small Austin apartment when I was working at Whole Foods and getting my master's of science in nutrition and integrative health. At the time, it was just a blog. It was a resource, um, an outlet for me to share everything I was learning about our food system. And around this time is when I found people, experts, doctors, nutritionists uh, that were starting to speak out about glyphosate or also known as Roundup that was being sprayed very heavily on our food. And you guys have to remember, this was 11 years ago and I was getting very concerned and trying to sound the alarm for people on why it is so important for us to eat organic food. Now, here we are 11 years later and Monsanto, which is the company that created or marketed and sells Roundup, which was then bought by Bayer a couple of years ago. They are in uh, many, many litigations right now with farmers and the like, people that are suing them because they got really aggressive forms of cancer from glyphosate, from Roundup. And the truth, the light is finally coming out. There's still a lot of resistance, but... Uh, you know, one step at a time. And it's that's really what my prerogative is here with, with this podcast and with Real Foodology is educating people on what is happening with our food and why we should be concerned about it. And also uh, giving solutions on what we can do and how we can stay healthy and navigate what's happening in our modern world. Now, back to what I said, why this is so profound for me is I found the work of Zach Bush. Um, I don't know exactly when, maybe six years ago or something. And he is a guest on the podcast today. I am so excited about this conversation. He is one of the people, one of the experts that I found early on that was speaking out against glyphosate and the reason why we should be concerned about it. He's been one of the the pioneers in spearheading this movement in uh, attempting to get glyphosate out of our food. So that's what this whole conversation is. We talk about glyphosate, what it means for our food, what it means for our health, what it's doing to our health, what it's doing to the health of our soil. We talk about soil health, why that's so important, the connection to our overall health and how we are only as healthy as our soil is, which is a concept that we are finally as humans waking up to. Um, we also talk about GMOs and what those mean for our health. We talk about Roundup Ready crops, like Roundup Ready corn, what that is, what that means. We really just dive into uh, all of the, we really just dive into our food system and how to navigate it and what we can do as consumers. There was a question that I was going to ask Zach that we never got to. So I wanted to address this really quickly. Actually, there's two of them. One, uh, I see this question a lot on Instagram, people asking if you can wash off pesticides. So unfortunately, we cannot. So glyphosate, for example, we cannot just wash that off the produce. It's in the soil. It's in the ground that is uh, where these plants or the produce that we're eating is growing. And so the glyphosate is in the 
the plant in the produce itself. So no, we cannot just be washing off this, these herbicides and pesticides. And I don't say this to scare you, but I say this um, to say that this is why it's so important that we do buy organic whenever humanly possible or go by the dirty dozen, which Zach also mentions on the podcast. So definitely look into the clean dozen and the dirty dozen. This is a great way to avoid glyphosate exposure as much as possible. I also want to say, I know a lot of what we talk about in this episode is scary, but there are solutions and we will get out of this. And there are things that we can do as an, on an individual level to um, get out of this mess. And we can be a part of the change, but we need to be willing to uh, to change up some the way that we buy our food, where we buy our food. It may require some rebudgeting and um, not postmating every night or going out to eat several nights a week and prioritizing going to farmer's markets, going to budget stores that we know that sell organic at a fairer price. And thankfully, organic food is becoming more and more widespread. I do want to point out that there is obviously an accessibility issue in this country, which is hopefully something that we will figure out as a population. So I just say all of this while also acknowledging that and saying that, you know, we can only do the, we can only do what we can do and we can only control so much. We can do the best we can. And then the rest of it, we got to let go, let live and just send it, you know? One more thing that we didn't really get to in the conversation that I wanted to mention very quickly before I get into my episode with Zach, um, the difference between non-GMO and organic food. So there's a bit of uh, loopholes here. We talk about GMOs. So listen to the episode if you want to learn more about those specifically. But um, with GMO, with non-GMO food, they can still spray those crops with glyphosate. So the difference between non-GMO and organic is organic food is legally not allowed to contain genetically modified organisms or GMO foods and organic is not legally allowed to be sprayed with glyphosate. So if you want to avoid GMOs and you want to avoid uh, glyphosate, then buy organic whenever possible. Uh, with non-GMOs, uh, non-GMO labeled foods, all that means is that it's not allowed to contain genetically modified organisms or genetically modified ingredients, but they can still spray it with glyphosate. So that's something really important to note. This is why personally I try to buy as much organic as humanly possible because then it kind of covers all bases. Well, with that, let's get into the episode with Zach Bush. I'm so excited for you guys to hear this episode. I hope that you love it. Please, as always, rate and review the podcast if you're loving it. It means so much to me and it really supports this show. And I just, I appreciate you guys listening. I appreciate you being here. Thank you so much. And before we dive into the episode, I just want to remind you very quickly of the giveaway that we have right now for the podcast. So this month, I am giving away a higher dose sauna bag an Aqua True Carafe, which is their new glass carafe uh, water filter, an Aqua True Classic, which is the classic water filter that I had before the glass carafe, an Aroma True, and an Air Doctor 3000 air filter. And all you have to do in order to be entered for the giveaway, it's so simple, you guys, you just need to rate and review the podcast. And once you've done that, screenshot it and email it to realfoodologypodcast at gmail.com. It's important to note this needs to be on Apple Podcasts because that's where you can leave a star rating and a review. Super simple. Email that in to us and that's going to be your entry. Now, if you want a bonus entry, you can go to Instagram 
and share any of my reels. I'm at Real Foodology. Just make sure that you tag me if you share any of my reels in your stories. And then I would go ahead and do a little screenshot of that in your stories and just send it to the email. It's realfoodologypodcast at gmail.com just in case if I miss it. And that's it. And then you guys are entered to win and we will announce all the winners on November 2nd. Good luck. With that, let's get to the episode and I hope you guys enjoy it. Did you guys know that over 70% of sodium in the U.S. diet is consumed from packaged and processed foods? When you adopt a whole foods diet, you are eliminating or hopefully eliminating these processed foods and therefore sodium from your diet. Now, the solution is not to reintroduce processed foods in your diet, but by not replacing that sodium, you can actually negatively impact your health and performance. If you guys listened to my episode, The Salt Fix with Dr. James Stinnick, we learned that sodium is actually a really imperative mineral for the body. Sodium helps maintain fluid balance. It's an electrolyte, so it helps keep us hydrated. It also aids in nerve impulses. It regulates blood flow and blood pressure. It's incredibly important. And if you're eating a whole real food diet, chances are you're probably not getting enough sodium. Also, this is probably going to be a shock to hear, but if you are just drinking water without adding minerals back into your water, you're not actually hydrating. My personal favorite way to stay hydrated throughout the day is through drinking Element every day. That's L-M-N-T. It's a delicious tasting electrolyte drink mix that has everything you need and nothing you don't. So that means lots of salt. There's no sugar in there. It's formulated to help anyone with their electrolyte needs and is perfectly suited for people following keto, low carb, and paleo diets. It has a science-backed electrolyte ratio, 1,000 milligrams of sodium, 200 milligrams of potassium, and 60 milligrams of magnesium. I drink one of these every single morning. They have a ton of amazing, super delicious flavors. I know a lot of us listening are avoiding natural flavors. So they also have an unflavored one, which is my personal favorite. I love to put it with lemon. But if you want the flavored ones, they have a great variety of different flavors. And they have given me an awesome offer to share with you guys. So you guys can claim a free Element sample pack when you make a purchase through the link. The link is drinkelement, that's L-M-N-T, dot com slash real foodology. And in the element sample pack, you're going to get one flavor, one packet of every flavor so that you can try all of them and see which one is your favorite. I hope you guys enjoy it as much as I do. Again, it's drinkelement.com slash real foodology. That's drinklmnt.com slash real foodology. Zach, thank you so much for coming on today. I really appreciate you and your voice in the space. I think it's, um, really imperative. It's it's so important, the work that you're doing right now, because people are very unaware of what's happening to our food at this moment. And I, first of all, I want to talk about soil health. I know this is a huge passion of yours and mine as well. And I think it's important for people to understand how does the, the soil health play into the health of humanity? Yeah, it's an exciting era in science as we start to realize that the compartmentalization of ecosystems is really uh, a falsehood. And we're starting to realize the air we breathe, the water we drink, the water we touch, the food we consume, the soils in which it was grown, all are a contiguous continuum of life. And this continuity or, or continuum of life in regards to these landscapes are mimicked within our bodies just as they are with outside the body. And so we are now learning that the soils that we grow in our food, our food in, influence the micronutrient and vitality of the the energy within the food itself that then goes into the soil of our gut as we eat, which then invigorates the nutrient transfer of energy from the, our soils into the root systems of our gut 
into the vascular tree that would, would pull that in just as the tree growing in the forest. And so our vascular tree absorbing all these nutrients, passing that to the individual cells, which then again have yet a whole nother fractal of this soil reality, which is the mitochondria, which are tiny little bacteria that live inside of our cells. So you, you basically can see life on earth emerging from the soil system of the planet to begin with, which would then create enough nutrient and light density energetics of the food that would then go and invigorate another soil system, which would be your gut that then grows you or the earthworm or the dinosaur, whatever is growing out of that food or that soil system of the gut. And then there's a whole nother ecosystem of bacteria and fungi and the rest that are dwell inside your body. We used to believe that the human immune cell system was there to sterilize the, the human so that it was human versus the world. And now we're realizing that the human immune system is actually not human. It's actually a description of an environmental relationship back towards a human organism or in which a human organism thrives. And so we now know the bloodstream has a normal microbiome. I have 10 to the somewhere around 10 to the 15 viruses in my bloodstream right now. And that's not 10 to the 15 copies of a virus, that's 10 to the 15 different viruses coursing through my bloodstream at any moment. And so there's this huge communication network, which are viruses that are coordinating bacteria, fungi, yeast, and human cells into one cohesive genomic expression that becomes human. And the decoding of the human genome was really the beginning of the breakdown of our old version of compartmentalization. We know that the human body is composed of 400,000 different proteins. And Watson and Crick back in the 1950s gave us the model of the DNA, the double helix that had one gene equals one protein equals a human being. So we thought we inherited from mom and dad the genetic information that would build our bodies. And now, starting 1996, we realized you know, there's only 20,000 human genes and we have 400,000 proteins. So clearly we had the wrong model of DNA. And to this day, both doctors, scientists and consumers alike don't know that. They still are stuck in this like genetics are what you know we result in. What we now know over the last 30 years since discovering the limitations of the human genetics is that the genetics that are expressing themselves in our bodies are coming from bacteria, fungi, viruses, and their interaction with our genes uh, to create this incredible diversity of expression that we get in our intelligence and our biology and all that. So we are an expression ultimately of these different fractals of soil. And as we come into the world in a contrary and kind of approach to soil life with antibiotics, herbicides, pesticides, and the like, the detriments that we see in soil systems worldwide have to then replicate themselves in a detriment of human health because we are contiguous with or a continuation of or a further expression of the soil health beneath our feet. Mm, that was very beautifully explained. So um, what is happening to our soil health? How, uh, how have we gotten to this place where our food is not as full of, of as many nutrients as it used to be? And why is our soil health suffering so much? Yeah, it was uh, a movement started in about 100 years ago, right at the beginning of the 20th century. There was the debut of the chemical industry really went, went wild. So uh, in the late 1800s, we were practicing thousands and thousands of years of herbalism, you know, plant medicine, all of this in every people group on the planet. And then uh, around the turn of the century, of the 20th century, we see this sudden realization that we could create novel chemicals and new compounds by manipulating fossil fuel, by using fossil oil as a substrate. We could create all kinds of weird new chemicals. And so the chemical industry was born 
uh, in uh, right at the turn of that century, actually through the research on chemical warfare. And so in the late 1800s, there was a, an international pact uh, that was signed by over 40 different countries saying that we would not use chemical warfare. And that was in realization of how detrimental to the planet and people would be if we used mustard gas on scale or something like that. So we realized the dangers of chemicals in the greater environment. And and so we turned instead from the idea of chemical warfare to chemicals as therapeutics to soils and humans. And so this was the beginning of our war on self in some ways. It was the war on life instead of the war on one another. Unfortunately, that treatise of, of the late 1800s didn't hold up. And by 1915, 1916, we were dumping tens of millions of pounds of mustard gas into the environment in our warfare of World War One. And so it lasted less than a decade and a half, uh, you know, in agreement that we wouldn't pour this stuff on each other and on our soils. And then we did. And that continued throughout the 20th century, all the way up to the big Vietnam War conflict, all the way up to more recently, chemical warfare being used across soil systems in Syria and everything else in the 21st century. So for the last 120 years, we've been using these chemicals to combat humans, soil health, and the rest. In some ways, this tactic in war is not new. We, we can look all the way back to the Roman Empire. The way in which Roman Empire conquered large groups of peoples is they moved in with salt and salted the fields to destroy the food system. And when you salt a field, you kill the microbiome. And so it's, you know, one of the first antibiotic, you know, approaches to taking over food systems and therefore creating insecurity in your enemy. And, and then, you know, being able to conquer them. So we've been destroying soil systems on purpose to gain control over peoples for a long time. And it turns out that the herbicides and pesticides that we're now using on our soil systems are based on salts. And mm-hmm. so here we are salting our own fields, just as the Romans did 2000 years ago to conquer peoples. And so we're salting the fields of indigenous peoples. We're salting the field in the United States. You know, we wiped out 40,000 years of corn growing soils in the, in the Navajo Nation area, uh, the Diné people down in, in the, the north, you know, southwest of the United States. In 15 years, we destroyed that to a completely sterile environment. They haven't been able to grow corn or anything in that space. It's a dead space. It looks like the surface of Mars. It's just red, fine sand with mm. nothing holding it down. And they've got sandstorms that rage a mile high. And we, we, we salted their fields and destroyed food security for on reservations throughout the country as we have salted our fields in non-reservation environments as well, Midwest and other, you know, Midwest, it's, we're now u- losing two tons of topsoil per acre in uh, a growing system over 200 million acres in the United States. And so our own fields and then the Amazon jungle, South America, we are pouring these salts, uh, these organic salts that we call herbicides uh, all over the world now. The most common one is called an organophosphate family, and, and the, the molecule that's most abundant is glyphosate, which is a chemical that is the active ingredient in Roundup, which became, of course, the whole basis of GMO crops. So we created Roundup-ready corn, Roundup-ready soybeans, beets, sugar beets, you know, sugar cane, the whole rest of it. So we have 30 different crops that are genetically modified to be able to be sprayed directly with this herbicide that kills the microbiome and ultimately kills the soil structure. 
which then makes farmers more dependent on more chemical inputs. So now that they have no microbiome to make nutrients to the soil, i.e. compost and normal soil cycling, so they have to pour in more and more chemical fertilizers from the same chemical companies that are selling you the herbicide to kill the soil in the first place. So great business model that's built one of the largest chemical, the chemical industry as a whole, as you look across the pharmaceutical agricultural space, largest corporation on earth, right, as far as an industry goes. So uh, we currently spray 2 billion kilograms of glyphosate into the soils of the earth annually. So it's like we have never created such a big industry before. It dwarfs the energy sectors. You think of oil and gas conglomerates as the big bad guys. They're dwarfed by the chemical industry's uh, treatment of agricultural soils uh, globally. So uh, kind of the smoking gun of why is the planet collapsing in its health and vitality? Why are we seeing the sixth extinction? It's because we turned our warfare on the soil itself over the last hundred years. So glyphosate is something that I really wanted to dive into with you because this is how uh, it's how I found your work. First of all, I was, um, you know, throughout my years of studying, I got really into organic food and then was led to um, glyphosate and Roundup and how pervasive it is in our food system. And one, I want to say I'm really grateful for all the hard work that you're doing around this because I believe it to be one of the most important um, concerns for us as humanity at the moment. So first of all, so you kind of explained this a little bit, but with glyphosate, why should we be so concerned about it? And is there a cancer component there? Like I, I hear all the time, especially online, I hear people saying um, glyphosate's fine. You know, it's the dose that makes the poison. What do you say to that? Yeah, I think, you know, there is some truth in the fact that the dose makes a poison. That's the, your first day of medical school that's told to you, you know, that the difference between a, a medicine and, and a poison is the dose. And so um, there may be some truth in that. But our laboratory has been working on glyphosate toxicity for 12 years now. And the we have not found a concentration of, of Roundup that is safe to human cells. Like it's mm. all right all the way down to two parts per billion, you can show detriment. And we have you know more than two parts per billion in almost every water system in the world now, all the way to our rain, the air we breathe. You know, 85% of the rainfall in the United States is carrying glyphosate. 85% of the water uh, systems, rivers, and, and oceans are, are carrying glyphosate in it. It's a water-soluble molecule that has penetrated the entire water cycle of the planet. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, it is ever present in our in our experience now, and the glyphosate molecule is, or the glyphosate molecule is particularly harmful in the sense that it's so insidious. You don't notice its toxicity in the first few minutes of exposure, and so it allows for mm-hmm. us to expose farmers and ultimately consumers who are eating the food with those residues on it for years and years before you realize there's a problem. So it's a very insidious injury that is uh, at the foundation of how biology works. And the injury that we have focused on the most in our laboratory is the damage to the way in which cells connect to one another. Because ultimately Mm -hmm. cancer is the isolation of a human cell. As soon as a human cell of any type isolates itself from its, its neighbors, it becomes cancerous. It changes the shape of the molecule. It changes its behavior. It becomes extractive instead of productive. It can no longer produce energy, so it sucks energy out of the system. It can no longer repair itself, so it starts to proliferate. So we call that a tumor. And so ultimately, cancer is the isolation of a single cell. Our lab has been showing that glyphosate cuts all of the connections between cells and creates isolation. 
Mm-hmm. And it's not surprising that we see that at the macro level. You know, what happened in the last two years is we are now a planet so saturated in a chemical that breaks the connections between human cells that we start developing global diseases, chronic fatigue syndrome, chronic gluten sensitivities, chronic Lyme disease. None of these existed in 1990. It was 1991 forward that we started to invent all these conditions of chronicity, of chronic inflammation and dysfunction. It's exactly when autism took off. It's exactly when Alzheimer's took off for our elderly, Parkinson's for the elderly male, Alzheimer's for women. Uh, it's right when we, our cancer epidemic really took off with leukemias, lymphomas, bladder cancer, breast mm-hmm. cancer, all of them taking off at the same time. 1991, what happened? In 1991, we started, uh, we approved uh, the use of of the glyphosate molecules as a crop treatment instead of just a weed killer. And so we mm-hmm. started spraying wheat primarily with this stuff. Subsequently started spraying so- soybeans, chickpeas, and all the legume family with this chemical so that we could harvest it quicker. And so it doesn't grow more crop. It doesn't get more crop. To, and it just makes it easier for the farmer to harvest quicker um, if, if they spray the entire crop right before it's harvested. So may, imagine this field of wheat that for 4,000 years has been making bread. And then you suddenly days before consumption or, or processing, you spray it with this chemical. And now you got really high residues of the chemical in the, in your bread. Mm-hmm. And so then we call it gluten sensitivity when in fact it's glyphosate sensitivity. And so what does glyphosate do? It cuts the, the connections between gut lining and you end up with leaky gut. And now you get inflammation, so you eat gluten, which has high residues of glyphosate, and you think you're reacting to the bread, when in fact you're reacting to the chemical. So over and over again in my clinic, I would send people over to Paris and say, you know, you're super gluten sensitive. Let me show you what that actually feels like. So go to Paris for a week, you know, take your vacation over there and eat as many croissants as you want. And they're blowing their mind that they can, like, eat a croissant and not be brain fog for three weeks. And then they come back to the States say, thinking they're cured of gluten sensitive. They eat one croissant here, and then they're gone for three weeks. So... It's really this chemical residue thing that created this whole industry, which is now an industry, you know, $30 billion a year of gluten-free products being sold. Mm -hmm. We learned all of this, interestingly, because we accidentally found an antidote to that separation of cells in the microbiome. And so the way we studied all the glyphosate data was we had developed a, a, a way to extract the communication network from bacteria and fungi from fossil soils and expose human cells to that. And we found out that when, when you get to see the communication network of the microbiome at human cells, the very first thing they do is increase the amount of connections human cells have, both at the tight junctions, which are the leaky gut kind of uh, ground zero, as well as at the gap junctions as well. So tight junctions, gap junctions, strengthening so you get better cell-cell communication and sharing of resources between cells. So it's, that's that's the secret to preventing cancer is stay connected. Mm. Any chemical that comes in the environment that breaks the, the relationships is going to increase cancer. So to answer your question, glyphosate is definitely a pro-cancerous compound. We've shown it thousands of times over a lab. You can do it on kidney cells, gut cells, vascular cells, brain cells. It doesn't matter what cells you put it on. It creates isolation. And within minutes of exposure, it does the phenotype shift towards cancer. So a big uh, columnar cell looks like a cube that is a small intestine cell, show it glyphosate. Within 15 minutes, it's turning into a fibroblast shape, which is the shape of cancer Mm -hmm. cells. So just minutes from isolation, the cancer cell phenomenon is starting to begin. So so we have a real crisis at hand as far as chemical exposure. 
But as nature does, she's more graceful than even our highest idiocy. She's already planted the antidote to this in the soil systems of our planet. And so the microbiome communication network speeds up repair so dramatically that it can overcome this dramatic rate of injury that the glyphosate, you know, organophosphate salts are causing in our soil systems. Who here loves organic crisp apples? I know you can't see me right now, but I'm definitely raising my hand. I love apples. They're one of my favorite snacks, full of fiber, so good, just the right balance of sweet. Well, I'm excited to announce that Organifi has just released a new green juice crisp apple. Oh my God. I'm so excited about this. I don't know about you guys, but I love the taste of apple. It has the delicious taste of organic crisp apples. It's organic whole apple sources that are handpicked like Golden Delicious, Northern Spy, Ida Red, and Empire. It is formulated at the highest quality with an effective dose of ashwagandha, which if you guys remember, has really helped me with my anxiety. Also, the best part is that it's low sugar. There's only two grams. It helps balance your hormones, cortisol. It has cortisol and stress support support. It's essential with micronutrients and fiber. There's also an effective dose of ashwagandha, like I said, and it's just acts as a daily reset and a cortisol support. It's small batch, hand-picked. It's also organic, which we love. Every product from Organifi is organic and glyphosate residue free. So you're not getting that carcinogenic herbicide herbicide in there. If you want to try it today for 20% off, go to Organifi.com slash realfoodology and use code realfoodology. That is O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I.com. Do you know what a nootropic is? If you don't, I highly recommend listening to my podcast episode with James of Magic Mind. It was such an eye-opening episode for me. We dive into the science behind nootropics, but basically what they are are properties that help to better your cognitive function. And most of them are come without side effects. There are some that are prescription drugs now that do come with side effects, but I try to stick on the natural side. You guys know me. I like to keep it natural and clean. And this is why I love Magic Mind so much. It is full of nootropics. It also has adaptogens in there, matcha, L-theanine to calm down the nervous system. So you get a little bit of energy and you get a boost of cognitive function, but you also get this calming effect too from the L-theanine. It is amazing. I can't speak highly enough about it. I drink it every single day alongside my morning coffee and it has truly changed my productivity game. They have given me a code to share with you guys. If you go to magicmind.co and use the code realfoodology, you're going to save 20%. That's magicmind, M-A-G-I-C-M-I-N-D dot C-O and use code realfoodology. For people listening, because I'm sure they're going to want to know this, what can we do to the best of our ability that we can control to in order to avoid glyphosate? So what are some of the most heavily sprayed crops? What are the ones that we should avoid? How can we navigate this? Yeah. Yeah. If you go to um, the Environmental Working Group uh, website, it's very helpful. And the Environmental Working Group has done a great job over the last 30, 40 years to to consolidate a lot of this information in one place as to kind of where your biggest environmental toxins. Um, but they did it specifically on a couple of website resources that you can go to. If you Google the Dirty Dozen or the, and the Clean 15, it takes you to two lists. The Clean 15 are the ones that even under conventional agriculture are not sprayed and you have very low residues of glyphosate. So those are the ones you can kind of shop conventionally. You don't have to get organic necessarily. You're going to have very little trace amounts at best. 
the dirty dozen are the ones that you always want to buy organic or even better, some sort of permaculture, you know, regenerative uh, agricultural kind of stuff. So that's where you want to know your farmer if you're going to touch any of the dirty dozen. And the dirty dozen are always led by strawberries, the most toxic thing we mm -hmm. grow. Um, behind that, it depends a little bit on season, but you're going to see things like apples, grapes, etc. on there. So you're going to see a lot of seasonal fruits um, in that in that list, some vegetables as well. Um, but Clean 15, an example of those are avocados. And so the avocados, you know, across all growing systems seem to be quite clean. Um, so that's, you know, a little glimmer of hope of like, you know, you don't always have to, to spend the extra money on the, on that. And we're seeing an equalization between, you know, organic and non-organic products pretty quickly here in the last couple of years. So the price points aren't, aren't differing enough to maybe make the same difference. Uh, although access is challenging. There's just simply a lot of neighborhoods mm -hmm. in the country that just don't have access to to those foods so um so anyway clean 15 dirty dozen we'll, we'll break that down for you just saying what what you really want to watch out for especially when feeding kids you know like you mm -hmm. know kids kids tend to get into real monotony with their food behavior especially kind of between the ages of three and six you know and so that's typically the, the kiddo who just wants macaroni and cheese or something like that and that's where we see the most disease happening and so in these children mm -hmm. with very narrow diets who are being exposed to glyphosate that's where we see eczema, asthma, uh, attention deficit disorder, sleeping disorders, anxiety disorders, precocious puberty in the girls, um, you know, delayed puberty in the boys uh, can happen. So both both directions in that way, um, disruption of you know the skin with acne, eczema, psoriasis uh, patterns in, in kids. So these our children are are now three generations into this destruction of the microbiome and each generation is going to get worse in their expression of disease because the the way in which these these traumatic injuries at the cellular level start to accumulate they do start to get passed on in our genetics so not only is the kid being exposed to glyphosate it has the genetic memory of mom being exposed to glyphosate in the womb mm -hmm. while it was in the womb and even before it was conceived mother is starting to upregulate inflammatory cascades, upregulate uh, kind of chaos stress patterns because of her, her exposure to glyphosate through her mother. So each generation from first exposure, which happened in 1974, 75, when it started to get really gripped in the herbicide weed killer market, 1991 comes around, we start spraying crops directly. 1996 comes around, we genetically modify all the crops to be sprayed throughout its life cycles. So and now we're spraying soil, seedlings, crops, all the way up through its life cycle, desiccants on on harvest time. So there's so much of it now starting to build up that, you know, I would say the real detriment, each generation is 25 years. So that generation born between 1990 and, and 2015 is expressing this very high amount of cancer, skin conditions, neurologic dysfunction, autism, now one in 30 children. It was one in 5,000 children uh, before the debut of Roundup. And so uh, we see this explosion. We're now on track to have one in three children on the spectrum by 2035. And so we're seeing this explosion of disease in our children with each generation. So the generation between 2015 and 2040, that one will express you know, many logarithms more than the ones born before that. And then that third generation that will start to be born 2035 forward um, is going to, we, we can't even imagine how, how the doors blow off on, on human health at that point. So um, it's we've we've set in motion a time bomb that we can't reverse, and so we need to instead of you know waiting for that event, we need to understand how to bring in resources to these children that give them a new foundation that mom didn't have, and that's what we've been mm -hmm. focused on with these soil nutrients, these 
small molecules made by bacteria, fungi, and the dietary supplements, but we're also rolling out large-scale testing now on large crops, so growing hemp and other you know, restorative uh, cover crops with the addition of these carbon molecules is showing great benefit and resistance to weeds and pests so that there is no need for the herbicides, pesticides in the same way and accelerates you know, regenerative recovery of soil systems, carbon cycle, nitrogen cycle, water cycle, uh, increase the amount of water content in soils uh, after rain, things like that. So there's just you know a very huge excitement in our group and others around the world that have started focusing on this carbon substrate or carbon communication within soil systems to understand that not only is this ground zero for the great extinction event that we've had in destructive soils, it's also the root solution for a future humanity and planet that's far more beautiful and resilient than it is today. Mm. Well, this is what I love so much about your work is that while it looks grim and everything that we're talking about right now can be really scary for people, you really inspire hope because you come with a solution, which is incredible. And that's what I, I love your vision because you can really see how we get out of this. It's just a matter of, first of all, it takes education, which is why I'm so passionate about this because people need to understand what's happening. We can't just, you know, put our hands in the soil, in the soil. We can't just put our heads in the soil and, and ignore it. We need to address this so that we can change our food system because what's happening right now, like you just said, I mean, we have a really sick population. We have a really sick humanity and we're seeing it across the board, you know, and, and it's not just Americans, it's all around the world and people are really suffering and it shouldn't be that way and it doesn't need to be. Yeah. Yeah. No, the nature is welcoming us back into our, our future health and uh, her arms are wide open waiting for us to realign ourselves with natural systems and we will realize a new humanity almost instantly. And we see that in regenerative agriculture. You know, I started a nonprofit called Farmers Footprint a number of years ago. And um, we've been working with, you know, amplifying the voices of regenerative farmers around the world so that farmers can tell farmers how successful this transformation is. Uh, we are losing 6,000 to 8,000 farms a year in the United States alone now mm -hmm. due to lack of secession because the children can't see a viable income stream. So they leave the farm and go find other jobs. Uh, another, you know, 50% of those losses are just from bankruptcy because the revenue streams have gotten so, so narrow uh, for farms as the cost of chemical inputs has gotten so high. The soil is so dead that the amount of fertilizer you have to put in there is ridiculous. And the plants that grow in chemical fertilizers are so weak at the immune system level that you have a huge demand for herbicide and pesticides. So, their, their bottom line is being eliminated by the, you know, all of that money is now going to the chemical industry. And interestingly, this is where bureaucracy can kind of inadvertently become part of the problem is that USDA came along and started providing crop insurance, you know, mm -hmm. decades ago. And the crop insurance can only be given if the farmer is practicing conventional agriculture or some other USDA approved methodology. And so some farmer comes along and says, I'm going to do regenerative permaculture, you know, farming. USDA doesn't have a box for that. And so they can't lend them money or give them crop insurance. If they don't get crop insurance, then, then the farmer can't get uh, capital expenditure, you know, loan to get their, their crop in the ground at the beginning of the year. And so the regulatory environment has incentivized, in fact, trapped farmers in this relationship to the chemical industry. And so they're getting subsidies, government subsidies to grow corn that will never get sold because we grow too much corn. And so between the USDA crop insurance and the artificial subsidies market, 
we're growing corn and soybean for absolutely nothing. And mm. whatever does go into the market goes into cattle feed and into ethanol, things like that, or into high fructose corn syrup and other preservatives and chemical preservatives and all these weird things that come out of these crops. Um, we're just not growing food anymore. And a significant, to the tune of like millions of acres globally, are not ever getting to market. And in the U.S., in the middle of the pandemic, when we had the worst food shortages in our rememberable history, farmers are burning and mowing down their their crops of corn and soybean so that they don't, you know, uh, have to, because there's no marketplace for them. And, and the U.S. government is paying them to cut down and burn their, their you know, their crops. And so it's just, it, it's truly an extraordinary you know, lesson in a reductionist approach to grow more for the sake of growing more. Yeah. We stopped growing food. We started growing commodity crops for ethanol, animal feed, the peril industry, all kinds of weird things that had nothing to do with eating. And now our country grows almost no food. Fresno County in California is the only county that grows, you know, the varieties of, of food crops that actually end up on our plant. So we're down to one county in the United States really providing the food that's necessary for our sustenance. Outside of that county, we're relying on imports all over the world. And so our supply chain is now thousands of miles long uh, to get a meal on your plate. And that puts us at an extremely high vulnerability as a nation. We do not have food security in the United States. We do not have, you know, any sort of food independence. We are highly dependent on these international marketplaces and the, the breakdown of supply chains, transportation, shipping, handling, all that globally during the pandemic really reveal just how vulnerable we are. And we saw, you know, huge grocery stores going empty in that first year of the pandemic as as the supply chain from abroad froze. And uh, it's a scary thing. It's a scary to realize that, that uh, we've created a nation that is as big as it is, a complete island, uh, so vulnerable to food collapse uh, because we don't grow our own food anymore. And the crops that we grow are, are not going to put on a plate. Well, and that's just crazy, especially when we know that, you know, we're growing a lot of corn and soybeans for cattle. Cattle stomachs were designed for grass anyways. So why are we not feeding them grass? Because we, and then we would have more farmland to grow for our food. It's just crazy. None of it makes any sense. And to talk about soybeans and corn, I want people to understand, um, I think GMOs are often represented as, or misrepresented as safe what is the truth about GMOs and what is Roundup Ready corn or Roundup Ready crops? Yeah, so Roundup Ready was designed uh, so that the crops could be sprayed directly with it, so that the food could be sprayed with these chemicals and not die, you know, and so the, the corn plant can stay alive. Uh, they've, they intentionally don't genetically modify Roundup Ready wheat because they want to kill the wheat and they, you know, with that. So, um, if you spray a normal plant, whether weed or crop with, with glyphosate or Roundup, it dies immediately within 24 hours. It's, it's shriveling up and dying because you've, you've completely cut the, the capacity of the plant to make the essential amino acids that maintain and build enzymes, structural proteins, the whole plant. And so the plant cannot regenerate itself within minutes of exposure. And so over that first couple of days, you see the plant, you know, just shrivel up and dry and dead. And so you've killed the substrate of the plant. And it just seems amazing to you, to, you know, any consumer, I guess, to, to realize that we're spraying our food with something that instantly kills the plants that it's sprayed on unless they genetically modify it to be able to handle this chemical. So that now we can eat even more of that chemical. <laughs> it's just crazy. So, 
and we're eating it. <laughs> you know, FYI, none of you are Roundup ready. All of you are Roundup sensitive. And mm-hmm. so uh, we are eating the chemical substrates that end up on the foods that are genetically modified. So there's a lot of, you know, I think subterfuge in the GMO marketplace because they say, well, the gene, the gene interruption doesn't do anything to human health. Well, maybe not. There, there's actually not, not much safety evidence to even suggest that. But let's go with the theory that the gene that's added to make it Roundup resistant is not harmful to humans. It's not that that we're worried about. It's the fact that it was genetically modified to be sprayed directly with a chemical that we know is dangerous and, and damaging to, to biology to, at every level, whether bacteria or human. And so we've, we've really, you know, through the subterfuge of of the regulatory environment and the way in which the chemical industry communicates with and actually in many ways owns that regulatory environment, uh, we're in this catch-22. So any rate, there's, you know, it again, sounds dismal, but on the, on the upside of it, here we are talking about it on a podcast and you're empowering, you know, tens of thousands of people right this second to become part of the solution. Each of us can start to know our farmers and each of us can start to grow some, some food in our backyards or in a container on our patio or in a community garden up the street. Each of us can, can volunteer once a month at a community CSA garden. You know, like we can, we can do this people. Like we've done it before at the end of world war II, we were growing 40, 45% of our food in backyard victory gardens, not just in the U S but throughout the entire allied countries, uh, Britain and beyond. And now we grow 0.01% of our food. And so we went from 45% foods and food independence in the household to zero over just a couple generations. So I want I want people to understand this too because anytime I talk about GMOs I will say personally my biggest concern is that this is a newer thing that we have been doing since like I believe it's the, it was the 70s correct and whenever I talk about them online people give examples of fruits and vegetables that we have hybridized so can we explain a little bit the difference between hybridization and genetically modifying something that's a great question so. Hybridization is where you allow nature to uh, adapt different traits. And so you've maybe heard of gain of function as a term that's been thrown around during the pandemic. So viruses are ever present in our environment. Like I said, there's 10 to the 15 viruses in my bloodstream right now. Um, that's a way in which for genetic communication to happen within biology. And every one of my cells right now in my body is being exposed to that 10 billion viruses and deciding whether or not that's a helpful gene or not. Some of these genes are being taken up and utilized, and so they're being integrated uh, into the, the DNA of the, that cell, or, or they're just translating new proteins within the cytoplasm cell and not bothering to be updated into the genome. So there's all these ways that we are in real time biologically editing the reality we live in. And so hybridization is a very direct method for this, where you kind of expose one, one trait of a plant to an, a plant that doesn't have that trait and see what happens. And if the plants see an opportunity for gain of function, they will take on this new, new hybridized trait or, or expression. And so that's uh, where you're allowing natural selection of genetic traits to select for gain of function or a new expression. In contrast to that, GMO is used, utilizing uh, a, a viral capsid that's been deleted of all of its regulatory stuff. And now a new gene is inserted that has to be expressed in any cell you touch with it. Mm-hmm. And so uh, that's where we were with like an adenovirus uh, you know, vector for you know, early GMO stuff with Roundup Ready stuff. Now we've gone beyond that to even CRISPR uh, technology. CRISPR is where you can really, uh, you know, more and more rapidly 
disrupt any regulatory decision making as to what is a good idea and you're forcing genetic trait to be expressed in any cell it touches. And that gets really concerning because genetics are so slippery. They never stay in one place. And what we've seen is that, that those traits, those genetic traits of resistance get shared across many different species. So after you've sprayed Roundup for five, seven years, suddenly you're getting Roundup resistant weeds throughout the entire environment because the genetically modified crop that had genetic traits are now passaging that on to other places. And so it gets scary when we start introducing new genes into biology that didn't go through a natural selection process where the cells didn't have the option, yes, I want it, no, I don't. And then you leave a, a viral capsid in there that allows it to be even more slippery than it typically would be in, in natural settings. So we have a very slippery genome now as we continue to genetically modify all kinds of things. And of course, we just experimented this at the global level now with uh, the RNA vaccines. We just genetically modified ourselves you know, directly. And so that was mm -hmm. the first experimentation of genetically modified species and you know, some 60% of developed world went ahead and genetically modified. So we've got a pretty interesting experiment going on right now as to whether or not we're going to see, you know, benefit or harm from direct modification. And right now the numbers are looking a little bit grim in that we saw like a 40x increase in mortality in young people between mm -hmm. the ages 25 and 55 that were previously healthy. Uh, and the, the term life insurance companies have never seen a spike like this. They plan for a, a, a 10x increase every 200 years in case there's a, a war or a natural disaster. And so in their actuarial tables of pricing a term life insurance policy, they plan for that, that, 10, that 10x. A 40 has never been imagined and certainly wasn't financially planned for. And so we have term life insurance companies that are blowing the whistle of like, holy crap, for, for three sustained quarters now since, since genetically modifying uh, our young people, we're seeing this huge spike in death in, in, in this population that have never expressed this level of mortality. And so it's an interesting moment where we, we are going to have to figure out now scientifically, what did we set into motion by that direct RNA, you know, modification of the genome? And we did use tricks from the CRISPR world and through, you know, genetic modifying uh, plants we used in the mod in the development of these vaccines, the science of CRISPR and an interruption of a lot of the regulatory pathways. So if a naturally occurring coronavirus comes into your body, you your body has all kinds of regulatory decisions as to whether it's going to express that vir the viral proteins or not. You take an injection of the vaccine, there it's bypassed all of the regulatory stuff and your body starts churning out spike proteins. And so you're making the spike proteins that are the thing that cause the vascular and neurologic injuries of coronavirus, but there's no regulatory, you know, uh, steps involved. Now you've bypassed all of those and you've added molecules that allow it to get into every compartment of the body. And so an, a normal virus may never see, you know, genetic interaction with a neuron, whereas, you know, uh, something that's forced through these chemical processes and genetic modification techniques can get into far more compartments of the body than we would see otherwise. So mm. it's interesting that we had coronavirus going through the population that was an RNA virus that was inducing production of spike protein and therefore inflammation. And we saw a certain level of mortality throughout the public. It was typically elderly. The average age was well over 70 globally. And so it was elderly people dying from coronavirus complications. And then we go and do an mRNA, you know, genetic modification through vaccination, and we see this huge spike of mortality suddenly in young people. So we basically aged the population quickly 
by an unregulated expression of, of spike protein as mm -hmm. a result of exposure to this RNA. Whereas in the normal setting, you have regulatory steps to decide whether or not your body can take that up and produce it or not. Yeah, and I'm, I mean, what concerns me the most, and I think you and I are aligned in this, is that nature doesn't get things wrong, but we're meddling with nature right now because we're, we're essentially playing God thinking that we know better. And I keep wondering at one, at what point are we going to just learn and take notes from nature instead of always trying to trick nature, override her, um, try to find some, a better solution. Why can't we just get to a place where we're working with her? This is why I'm a huge proponent for regener regenerative farming because it's going back to nature and working with her instead of against her. Yeah, I think it, I think the time is now. I think we're seeing this enormous surge of public interest in, in soil systems and gardening. Uh, we sold out of seeds, you know, throughout the country within weeks of the pandemic. Everybody starting to decide they need to grow food, realizing there was going to be a shortage. Um, so we have this huge new revival, I think, of our understanding of our relationship to soil and food systems. And it's, it's well afoot now. And, and obviously you and I, you know, met down there at Rome Ranch and all that for Earth Day. And, you know, we, ha we see these huge gatherings happening of people who are concerned about their food system and concerned that their children may not have access to food and water that's going to sustain life. And so how do we, how do we change everything now? And so this is the time. This is the decade where everything must change. Uh, we're in the midst of the sixth great extinction as we lose topsoils globally. We're at 97% of arable land in the, in the world is now considered depleted or severely depleted. 97% mm. um, of indigenous peoples and First Nations people are gone. And so we've depleted our soil and our humanity at the same rate. And it's not surprising, you know, listening to some of the soil PhDs out there, Alan Williams being a great example of it. Uh, as he says, you know, we've got 60 harvests left on the planet at our current rate of topsoil loss across the world. And our current, you know, usage of these chemical inputs is destroying soil so fast. We've only got 60 harvests left. And then you have biologists, you know, banging on my side of the, the aisle over here in endocrinology saying we've only got, you know, 60 to 80 years left of human fertility because of the drop in sperm counts and the function of the ovary is dropping so rapidly. We have one in three mm -hmm. males who is now sterile by sperm count. Um, and it's like going so fast now. We've lost 60% of you know sperm counts in all Western countries in just 30 years. And so we, you continue that line, which hasn't begun to flatten. You continue that line, line downward and, and we could see the complete collapse of our ability to procreate as a, as a species within the next, you know, Half, half a century here. So uh, the time is now, and fortunately, all stakeholders are waking up. And so the very people that, or the very corporations in particular that have been our biggest problem, the big conglomerates, you know, the Nestle's of the world, the General Mills that created the, you know, these extreme demands on monopoly scale uh, commodities for ingredients for packaged consumer goods, are starting to realize they they were part of the problem and they're realizing consumers are changing so fast that their companies are going to go out of business if they don't pivot. And so you've got Nestle uh, hiring a new CEO a few years back, Mark Schneider. You've got, um, you know, all of these different companies starting to pivot. And here's Mark Schneider, a CEO of Nestle, who goes in public and says 97% of the, or I think he said 98% of the products that are on the market from Nestle are bad for human health. He said that just wow. a couple more months ago and he didn't lose his job, which means his board also sees that they have to pivot. And so um, he's he made a year, year and a half ago the statement that by 2030, Nestle would have you know, 14 million tons of 
regenerative ingredients monthly by 2030. Right now it's at zero. So, so he called up, you know, our nonprofit asking like, how, how are we going to do this? Like, what do we need to do to get behind this movement so that that can become a reality where the supply chain for Nestle becomes part of the solution. And the answer is not just about food. It's really about humanitarian practices. You know, these, these corporations wield more budget, you know, bigger budgets than most nation states ever have in history. And so they go in and buy massive, you know, stretches of land in the developing world. And then they hire local militias to push, you know, indigenous peoples off those lands that have been living there for thousands of years. And then they go in and clear cut forests and they grow sugar beets or whatever it is. So that behavior needs to change at every level and needs to embrace the humanity that's within those places and needs to embrace the soil system within those places, the ways in which the ecology of rainforests and river systems work worldwide. And so we have an opportunity to really educate corporations, conglomerates, stakeholders, consumers, all of us need to become collaborators rather than consumers. We need to collaborate with nature rather than consume her. And so how are you going to do that? How are you in your life going to make this pivot with us? And how are you going to become a collaborator? If you're not gardening, then what are you going to do? You're going to support farmers in your area to make this transition towards regenerative management. You're going to increase your demand of knowing what their inputs are. Are you composting? Are you using cover crops? Are you using no-till methods? Uh, this is These are simple questions that you can ask at a farmer's market or whatnot. And it may take you, you know, some time to develop relationships so that you trust the answers that are coming at you because you don't always get, you know, honest answers. Even the people standing in the booth often don't even know they're they're just there to sell sell things they don't necessarily up in the in the in the management of the farm itself. So so it may take some time to find your relationship back towards the soil in which your food kind of interacts with that soil. Uh, but it's worth the effort. It's worth the, the digging because you can become part of the solution by becoming educated, becoming aware of the problem and the solutions that are at hand. Yeah, I love that. I really, I'm grateful for conversations like this and the fact that there are a lot of people really working hard to instill change right now. That Rome Ranch event that you just mentioned, uh, that Force of Nature put on that I went to a couple months ago where you spoke at, I left feeling so hopeful and so inspired because there I met so many different people from so many different walks of life. I met farmers and ranchers and, you know, doctors and nutritionists and just everyday people that were just like, I'm so passionate about this. I wanted to come and learn how I can do more and do better. And so I want to, I want to leave this episode with people feeling hopeful and inspired and knowing that there is a lot of change happening. And while all of this is really scary and it looks really grim, there's a lot of people that really care and are working so hard to instill change. And it's cool. I'm so glad that you mentioned the guy from Nestle because it's it's amazing to see people at the top that are that are caring and are actually taking the steps to change this. Um, is there anything else that we can leave people with that will inspire hope or inspire them to make the changes that they need to make in order to be a part of this solution. Yeah, I think, you know, getting outside is a good step, you know, and so get your kids outside, get yourself outside, whether that be national parks, state parks, uh, local community parks, uh, get out into many environments as you can and start to ask your park service what they're using and, and push them to stop using glyphosate because it turns out that parks and the Department of Transportation along highway systems are uh, bigger offenders of glyphosate use than even farmers are. So our governments are pouring tons of this stuff into our environment in, in the justification of 
invasive weeds in national parks. Well, killing the soil is not the solution to that. Like the reason those invasives are there is because of lack of biodiversity to begin with. And so how, what we now know through work in Yellowstone and with reintroduction of the wolves and down South Africa, reintroduction of the white lions, uh, when you start putting these keystone species back in place, there's an immediate effect all the way down the cascade of biology and you improve soil systems by allowing nature to be the keystone species rather than humans. Uh, humans have so written ourselves out of natural behavior that we don't function as uh, as kind of that you know keystone species uh, even though we we think we take on that role we don't understand the importance of sovereignty of life at every level from bacteria on up you put sharks back into damaged water systems and suddenly the coral reefs re return uh, you know the, it, it happens again and again around the world that rewilding systems allows for almost immediate restoration and so uh, projectbiome.org is is my you know overarching you know uh, organization that's trying to go global now to start rewilding river systems throughout the world especially in our most damaged and precious ecosystems like Africa where we have the most biodiversity on the planet of course all biodiversity on the planet we can in Africa and so we have a, an opportunity in recognizing what we've done in our chemical disruption of the planet we can begin right back at the beginning we can become collaborators in the rebirth of our planet and our humanity as we start to allow other species allow the elephants to become the keystone species along river systems in, in there and they will replant the trees that start to invigorate the water systems to return Rome Ranch, they, they brought bison into a completely damaged ecosystem. The arroyos were all dry. Within 18 months of those bison having their hooves back on that ground, the river started to flow again. And so we, if we allow nature to take her rightful place on the throne of, of biology and allow humanity to step back into the supportive role instead of an extractive role, we will see invigoration on this planet that we can't even imagine. In fact, this planet could start to birth species and intelligence that's never been seen on the planet because that's what happens after extinctions. And so with each of the five previous extinctions, we've seen explosion of biodiversity, beauty, intelligence coming out of the virome that's left behind by the stressors of extinction. The viruses are new expression of genetic potential. And so when we see a planet start to express viruses in a whole new way, as we have in recent years, it means that the planet is ready for a reset. The planet understands that the, 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 the system is in collapse. And so we need to plan our next expression of life. And it's already doing that. Nature is already preparing for the next version of beauty. Before the last extinction, we had dinosaurs, reptiles that were the dominant species on the planet. And the, the plant life was palms and ferns. Extinction event happens, new genetic expression. It comes back with wildflowers, deciduous trees, birds, and then, of course, mammals and ultimately homo sapiens. And so we are the next expression of life after massive extinction. And so imagine the jump from dinosaurs to birds and humans to birds and humans going extinct and what comes next. How much more beautiful does this planet get? How much more intelligence does the life on the planet get? That gets me excited. It means that our extinction is not a bad thing for planet Earth. It's part of the journey into the full expression of life on this planet. And we've been given the intellectual capacity to understand our role in the demise of this current extinction event and such that we could blunt that effect. We could disrupt and redirect our current behavior such that we get to stay and play for that new beauty on the planet. And we could see what that new genetics does in us. 
I believe those that have survived coronavirus are carrying a new resilience, a new intelligence that didn't exist before the pandemic. And so those that, that will continue to survive and get these gene updates smarter and smarter every time, we will express something great. And this is where I get excited, you know, indigenous wisdoms again coming through here is that there's been prophecies set in place that in this decade, you know, kind of between the late 2015 to 2025, or some say 2017 to 2027, somewhere in this zone of decade that we're in right now is the moment that humanity will lose our genetics of fear, guilt, and shame. Mm -hmm. And humanity will open up its new, its second wing, which is the feminine expression of life. The masculine expression, the right wing of the bird that's been flapping and sending us in circles as a species, uh, destruction, destruction, destruction. It was an unbalanced approach because we were goal mediated. We kept seeing short-term goals and we'd see some success. So we would scale that and then do damage that we didn't see coming. It was through this kind of control of the, the extractive nature of, of the, the injured masculine that we kind of express the society we live in. We eliminate guilt, fear, guilt, and, and start to understand the nurture, resilience, and regeneration that's natural to the feminine side of nature. And we start to express that as a species. We become a completely different thing in the next 10 years. So we are in the midst of a prophetic moment in which humanity really changes. And that change may lead, lead through extinction. And we, we move into our light bodies and disappear. I was a hospice doctor for a lot of years, and I never saw a death that was an endpoint. It's always a rebirth. Uh, and you get to see through the veil in, in those last few minutes of life over and over again when people are conscious enough to be aware of it. And they're seeing the other side of a new life, you know, on the other side of this, this physical veil that we call human. And so maybe all of us need to do our hospice moment and let go of the body to become our a higher expression of ourselves and rebirth into some other reality. Or maybe we, some of us stay to play and, and we expand as a species in a new and different way uh, with a different expression of ourselves within nature instead of against nature. Mm, that was so beautiful. I'm somewhat speechless, but um, I will say that I agree with you. I think the last couple of years really showed how, how scared we are as a population of death and how disconnected we are from the reality that we all have an end on this planet. And the sooner we uh, make amends with that and just learn to live our life and do the best we can and control the things that we can control and live and let go of everything else, the, the more at peace we'll be. It's beautiful. Yeah. So before we go, I want to ask you a personal question that I ask all of my guests, and I'm very curious to hear what yours is. What are your health non-negotiables? So these are things that you do no matter how crazy busy your day is to prioritize your own health. Silence is the first one. Uh, your your biggest piece of, of life is, is uh, being in silence uh, between the moments, between your own words, between your thoughts. Focus in on the silence that's there. It is vast. There's so much space between, you know, turning off the car and getting out of the car. In those couple seconds, if you become aware of it, there's an eon there. There's so much space to sense into the universe, sense into the trees around you, sense into the earth beneath your feet. There's so much time in your day that you're not realizing is there and therefore you feel busy. Humans are not busy. Humans have simply filled themselves with activities that, that distract themselves from the silence between. We've forgotten that there is silence and space between everything. And it's the majority, 99.997% of reality is not solid, it's vacuum space. Uh, 
And that repeats itself, not just in the physical expression of it, but also in, in the vibration of voice, spoken word. Every time I say a sentence, there's space between every syllable. There's space between every word. There's space at the end of every sentence. There's space between your thoughts that are coming in as an expression of my words and your next you know, reaction to that. There's space everywhere. And so a non-negotiable for your sense of self and your expression of who you are on this planet at this tipping point of all things, to find your sense of purpose is to say it is your sense of now. You need to come into the present. It is non-negotiable. If you don't do it, our species goes into extinction. If we don't learn to become present and silent within the context of our nature, we won't hear the path forward for our own hearts, our own minds, our own spirits. So practice silence. And again, it's not so much go meditate a bunch. If you do, that's fantastic. It's more become meditative in your lifestyle. Become meditative in your day-to-day such that you're constantly aware of the space between. And you enjoy the silence and you don't rush to fill it with anything. And let that silence expand over the course of your day. And then I think, you know, the other one that gets recognized a fair amount now, didn't used to get much attention is sleep. Finding the silence getting in nature, silence in nature is super, super beneficial. And then I would say the third piece sleep is huge. And I'm, I'm not even saying that you have to go sleep eight hours. I'm not even sure that's the right answer for everybody. There's a lot of different biologic routes to good rest. And I think napping is under underestimated. And so take a nap in the silence of nature on a daily basis. And I guarantee your life and perspective of the world around you will, will shift and you will fear death less and you'll enjoy life more. Mm, that was so beautiful. Well, please uh, let everyone know where they can find you. Um, also, I am a huge fan of Ion. So if you want to tell people a little bit about your gut support and just plug anything you want to plug before we go. Yeah, so Ion was the last 10 years of science we were talking about. Intelligenceofnature.com um, is where you can find out some of that science and all that. You know, I think you've got links on your page there. Um, and so people can link through to, to Ion, but it's basically, it started with the gut health, but we also have sinus and skin health products that really revolutionize your relationship to your environment. Um, this is, these are the carbon molecules made by bacteria and fungi that we're talking about that, that it, uh, function as the communication network between the cells. And when you put the wireless network back in place, suddenly all the cells start making more proteins and they start making the tight junctions and the gap junctions and antioxidants and everything else that you would want to support life flows out of communication. This is perhaps the first product on the market that doesn't do anything to you. It literally doesn't change anything about the way your cell is directly. Instead, your cell decides to do a whole bunch of repair and regeneration when it finds out that there's injury. And so the lack of repair in your body right now is due to a lack of communication and awareness that there's a problem. As soon as you put the communication network back in place, the whole body revs up its production. The product functions as a communication network, but it also functions as basically the compost, if you will, delivering micronutrients and other critical you know, trace nutrients that's not no longer in your food because it's no longer grown in soil to begin with. And if it was grown in soil, it was grown under the pressure of herbicides, pesticides and the like. So getting the nutrients that are missing because of our, our dedication to GMO, uh, getting those back in the diet is a huge change. And so we've seen just the most tremendous testimonials about uh, the way in which life and vitality spring forth from the body and just given weeks or even you know, a few days of the product's consistent use, it can really revolutionize who you are and who you're expressing at the genetic and at the protein level and ultimately at that spiritual consciousness connection to self. So 
Uh, it's a very exciting you know, product line to tap into. Um, you can find all my educational content uh, at ZachBushMD.com. We have a global health education summit um, every quarter during the pandemic. We were doing it monthly. Uh, there's a huge uh, tome of information. I give a four-hour lecture on viruses there, and there's another four-hour lecture on GMO. So if you want to do a much deeper dive on the stuff we talked about and brushed to stroked on in this hour, uh, there's there's uh, over 35 hours of free content on that educational platform. That's not just me talking, actually. We've got uh, science uh, teams and, and um, panels of discussion from experts and everything from mental health to death and dying and, and mortality and how we reframe that to autism uh, and vascular and heart health and goes on and on. So a ton of information from a ton of experts in the industry that I know every single one of those episodes will completely change your, your idea of what those diseases were and will completely empower an, a non-fear state in you regarding these different diseases that have been put in motion by our, our dedication to chemical farming. And so if you want to help us out at Farmers Footprint, it would be much appreciated. Every dollar goes back towards telling farmer stories for them. Uh, we do meet the farmer stories is the main place that a lot of that money goes. And so we do some small documentary films on farms all over the country and now all over the world uh, as we continue to expand. Um, so uh, we would love your support at farmersfootprint.us. If you're in Australia, uh, farmersfootprint.org.au. Uh, we'll get you there for our Australian team. Um, we're in the process of launching the UK and South Africa farmers footprints. So if you're in those countries, uh, reach out and let us know that you're here to support in those places as well. So farmersfootprint.us, the main site there. Um, if you're looking for really deep health support and this has suddenly got you in a fear paradigm of like, oh my God, now I know what my problem is. How the hell do I dig out of this problem? Uh, we have an eight-week program where you're teamed up with a one-on-one -on -one coach or we also have group coaching, uh, which is also super powerful to go through this program with six or eight people and watch their transformation of health and be inspired to, to apply what they're learning to your own life. Uh, that website is journeyofintrinsichealth.com. Uh, incredibly, we program there to completely reboot um, your relationship to food, water, breath, sleep, all fasting, you name it. Uh, so we have eight tiers of, of human biology and the lifestyles that can go to support those, those eight elements of life. Uh, so it's a really cool elemental fashion of looking at health and vitality uh, that suddenly makes a really complicated field that sounds like you have to spend thousands of dollars on supplements every month suddenly to get really simple. And these free things that are in your life, things like silence, breath and movement all become your building blocks to a healthy lifestyle that can really revolutionize your sense of independence, not just in food independence, but a sense of, of health sovereignty that is critical to your to your state of affairs there. So journey of intrinsic health. If you're interested in really moving the, the, the health industry at large through the food systems, uh, we re recommend you join some of the Farmers Footprint uh, discussion groups. Uh, we have uh, think tanks, all of that. Uh, but also if you're in the area of financial impact, investing and things like that, uh, we started Biome Capital Partners and we're currently you know, fundraising our first round there at this large private equity um, firm that's looking to partner with farmers to allow them to become stakeholders in the land they, they manage again and to accelerate their adoption of regenerative through enabling investments in ag tech, transportation, distribution, all the things that have to change to allow farmers to get these value added products to your table. So Biome Capital Partners, if you're in that space of uh, private equity or impact investing, family office, anything like that, uh, we're here to have your support and participation in that, in that big impact fund. Amazing. Zach, thank you so much. I'm so appreciative of all of the work that you're doing and for your voice in this space. It's really making an impact and I'm grateful. Thank you. 
grateful to be with you, Courtney. It wouldn't happen without the narrative getting out to the people. So thank you for curating community. Thank you for curating hope for all of us in the work that you do. It's, it's a real gift. Thank you so much. Thanks for this episode. Thanks for this conversation. I really enjoyed it. Me too. Take care. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of the Real Foodology Podcast. If you liked the episode, please leave a review in your podcast app to let me know. This is a resonant media production produced by Drake Peterson and edited by Mike Fry. The theme song is called Heaven by the amazing singer Georgie. Georgie is spelled with a J. For more amazing podcasts produced by my team, go to resonantmediagroup.com. I love you guys so much. See you next week. The content of this show is for educational and informational purposes only. It is not a substitute for individual medical and mental health advice and doesn't constitute a provider-patient relationship. I am a nutritionist, but I am not your nutritionist. As always, talk to your doctor or your health team first.